Hey, everybody. Absolutely stunning news over here this week. We have a video version of this week's episode available on our Patreon, which is patreon.com slash late night. Go over there, sign up at any tier, and you'll have access to it. Once again, that's patreon.com slash late night. Now, enjoy the show. Normally, we would roll into this slowly, but Leighton is out today, and this is Late Night with Brian Wecht, and I have, you know what, I'm going to say we have one guest and one co-host. So, JP, I'm promoting you Wow! to official co-host of Late Night, just for tonight, so don't let it go to your head. 20 minutes ago, I had no idea this was in my future. That's right. (laughs) A little last minute, but... Because you and our guest have a fun shared history. I thought it'd be fun to have the two of you on. So, JP, introduce yourself. Who are you? Hey, my name's JP Hassan, and I'm a friend of Brian's and friend of Peter's. And a previous guest on the show, of course, anyone who has heard every episode. And we're going to go right to our guest to introduce himself right away. This is the most professional thing I've ever done. <laughs> guest, who are you? And uh, and what do you do? <clears throat> Um, hi, my name is Peter Agostin. <laughs> I'm friends with you guys. We also work together. You know, I've known both of you now for a long time. JP, I've known for many, many years, decades now. So yeah, I'm, I'm honored to be here. I traditionally work as a booking agent. I book tours for lots of different artists. I work at Real Good Touring, which is how I know Brian, and have worked as an agent for many years, as well as like a project coordinator for many different kinds of uh, recorded projects and stuff like that. So yeah. You were also a podcaster, correct? I am. Now, my podcast has taken a small hiatus, like post-pandemic. I'm actually gearing back up to drop a new one pretty soon. And, you know, JP's even been a guest on mine many years ago. Um, I think it was in 2016 or something like that. It was a while ago. You know, I started in New York. It's called The House List Podcast. So it's similar to yours in that it was a long-form interview style, casual conversation. And yeah, in fact, when we did JP's, it was when he was on tour with Tim and Eric. They played Town Hall in New York City. And I met him up in his hotel room and we recorded a conversation there. But yeah, I love the medium. I'm happy to be a guest here. This is exciting. I appreciate the invite. It's awesome to have you here. We've been meaning to have you on for a while, so I'm glad you could do it. And look, we, we're going to get right into this. What is your guys' shared history? Because you go way back, right? Oh, yeah. We go back probably 2099, 2000, something like that. Yeah, 99, 2000 for sure. It's hard to say. I mean, I got to the West Coast from, I grew up in Virginia. I lived in New York briefly in 1998, moved to the West Coast like around 98. And then um, lived in Portland, Oregon, went to film school there for a couple of years, 98, 99. And then I moved to Arcata, California to continue my education at Humboldt State University. And that's where I met JP, is in Arcata, California, probably somewhere, I think, in the year 2000. And I'd never seen anything like his performance before. I was taken aback. You were performing at Humboldt, JP, when you guys met? I wasn't at Humboldt State. I mean, I think for the first, at least first couple years of touring through Humboldt County as part of larger tours, I played at this place called the Vista, which was a seafood restaurant by day. Uh-huh. And then in the back room, they turned it into this kind of punk venue. 
Yeah. And it was very ramshackle, sea shanty, dirty, disgusting, covered in fish and chips, grease and stuff. <laughs> yeah. It was right on the water in the Humboldt Bay. But it was amazing. And almost everybody that I encountered in that town was like really neat and interesting. And, and they were interested in what I was doing. So like, of course, I thought that was fun. Yeah. You know? Yeah. We were obsessed with JP. <laughs> JP and I's mutual friend, Michelle Cable, who runs uh, the Panache Booking Agency. She had booked those earlier shows as a promoter, if I'm not mistaken. And, you know, when she was like 16, 17 years old. And awesome. when when Plesiosaur played, I... Which was, for those of you who are listening, that was the name of JP's act. Was that what you would call it? Yeah, it was a, a live act. And yeah, that it was called Plesiosaur. So yeah. 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 And uh, I'd never seen anything like it. And I love weird shit. I love experimental music and experimental film and comedy my whole life. So JP's performance as Plesiosaur completely embodied everything that I like was into <laughs> at, from child on. I mean, here's a guy that had a old school overhead projector on stage, like the same shit that you would have in, uh, you know, civics class or in, uh, you know, science. And mm -hmm. he would be taking slides off. Back then, he had another gentleman helping him too. So it was almost like a duo. And then he had like a curtain, then he would come do costume changes. And, and these songs were these like really catchy, funky jingles and stuff. And I had never seen anything like it. I was completely obsessed from the very beginning. And I still remain just as obsessed with that music to this day. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I lived in Arcata for five years in Arcata, California. I went to college at Humboldt State. I graduated, stayed there for an additional year. But over that course of that time, I mean, uh, JP had played at least once a year, if not two or three times, sometimes. And he played my going to one of my very last shows. In fact, I think it was technically my very last show at this community center in Manila, California, which is a, has about a population of 100 people. Uh -huh. And yeah, even he booked his, some of his side acts. Uh, American Sheriff is another really great one. That oh, I don't even did. know about American Sheriff. It's something else, I gotta tell you. <laughs> he takes on the persona of a highway patrolman, sheriff. Oh, I like this. With a loose, soft, comedic undertone to it. It's like country and western with like a pop feel appeal to it. I have to look at this. There's a full-length album that exists. Now I have to check this out. I might be the only person that has it. More interestingly, one of the first times I was rolling through Eureka... The 101 highway splits when you get to the town. Uh, the southbound is over here, and then northbound is like a block over, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And heading southbound through town, and I look over, and I, we're passing this Red Lion Hotel, and on the marquee, it says, like, live tonight or, you know, next Tuesday or whatever, DJ Thanksgiving Brown. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and i thought that might be the best name for a dj i've ever heard <laughs> so we get to the club and i started asking around i was like does anybody know about this thanksgiving brown thing at the red lion hotel and they're like oh yeah it's this guy peter you guys actually would get along great <laughs> and 
I don't remember how we actually met in person, but anyway, so it was funny that I had organically seen his thing and yeah. thought that that was really crazy and cool. And just the name, like I was enamored. So yeah, Peter and I hit it off and maybe it's easier when you're a little younger, you know, I mean, we were both in our twenties, yeah. but nowadays, I mean, I don't know if you guys feel the same way, but it's hard to make uh, make friends. Oh yeah, it is. You know, and especially as like a grown man, if you walk up to someone and be like, "Hey, I want to be your friend. I think you're cool." <laughs> you're probably either going to get punched in the stomach or you know, canceled online or something. You know. Yeah, well, but I mean, you guys are. When I think of like good friends I've made in my forties, you guys are way at the top of that list oh, and, right? and, and like totally agree but it's a small list is my point right i mean i can count them on like one hand yeah in your 20s when you have kind of nothing better to do like hey we like the same weird shit now yeah. and we're sort of stuck in the same place totally. great that's it yeah. now we're best friends forever yeah <laughs> <laughs> that's what drew us to you probably too we're not that different really if you think about it too just the same interest sure. in, in weird stuff funky weird art and funny you know off-color humor and yeah it's harder to come across people like that these days too like as like more of an adult but i'm so glad to run into someone like you that can do what you do with Ninja Sex Party and what you do with Starbomb and then what you do with this podcast. It embodies the same weird shit that what JP and I were doing in the late 90s, early 2000s, because I know you were doing stuff way back then as well. The stuff I was making back then, you know, I wasn't doing explicit comedy projects and stuff. I was in like jazz bands and and things like that. Things that were a little more, not exactly middle of the road, but not as, you know, offbeat as the stuff I ended up doing. But I know, JP, I mean, you were doing your own thing forever, years before I, I started doing mine. And Peter, same with you, with DJing and everything else. So I think you guys started way earlier than I did with the, you know, really do the stuff you want to do kind of thing. I mean, I also was, I was in grad school and doing the whole academic, you know, kind of route. So I had that going on. But I got to it way later than either of you, I think. Yeah, JP, when did you start making music? I started making music when I was maybe 12, 13. Mm -hmm. I really wanted to play bass. And so my parents rented me a bass from a music store. <laughs> That's great. A green PV bass. And um, I took maybe four lessons. And I thought it was great. And I got a bass for Christmas and started playing in bands with my best friends you know that's so great it was the best thing ever that was right around when grunge was really hitting is that right when you were like 12 13 or was that a little before just before it was maybe nationally known yeah there were a couple bands that i knew of only because like my uncle worked with them like soundgarden and stuff like that and we should say for people who don't know this is in the seattle area this, that, is, in seattle. this is all happening yeah yeah and so yeah, probably 1989, 1990. And then, I mean, it was almost like overnight, everything just kind of hit. And that was just throwing gasoline on the fire. Because <laughs> right. you're so impressionable at that age. You're so 
obsessed with whatever you're obsessed with. And my friends and I just loved fucked up music and art. And we were the, right there. So it was inspirational to see, not that we were making grunge music necessarily, but like... Just to see that stuff going on around you. See stuff going on time, and like yeah. people, you know, in your general zip code that were succeeding and they weren't, uh, you know, like Paul Abdul or, you know. <laughs> How would you describe the music that you're making at that time? It was like... Paul Abdul? It was, yeah. <laughs> It was it was punk, I guess, kind of. We had a a female singer who played flute. Also, oh, we had a violin player. There were all these sort of incarnations of the group, and it was art punk, art rock. Yeah, you know, Sonic Youth was a big inspiration. My neighbors hated me and my friend. <laughs> yeah, of course. The feedback and the, you know, yeah. The smoke pouring out of my parents' <laughs> What about you, Peter? Were you making stuff at, as a tween, teen? Yeah. For me, it was DJing. So I started DJing on the radio. I mean, I got turntables, I think, when I was around 13 or 14. And this is in Virginia, in the Virginia area. This is in Blacksburg, Virginia. I had an older brother, too, so he's eight years older than me. So a lot of the stuff that he was into, I was like informed of like at a very young age. And sure. my parents collected a lot of records and stuff, too. So I was always like around music and, you know, looking at records and, you know, just being really comfortable around that. And at the time, as a kid, I watched a lot of television as well. So like right when MTV first came out, when Nickelodeon sure. first came out. So I was just like basically Nickelodeon and MTV, like all day, every day, nonstop, along with other things, PBS. Yes. And sitcoms and all that shit. But I became pretty obsessed with DJ culture and there was, you know, it's a college town. That's where Virginia Tech is. So obviously there's a college radio station there. And I remember going to parties in middle school and putting on the college radio hip hop show, like to be the background music at a party, like when we were in sixth grade or something like that. That's awesome. I would call up and request songs. I remember requesting like, you know, just early 90s hip hop, Leaders of the New School, that's where Buster Rhymes came from, uh, had a song called Sob Story, which was like, came out like 91, 92. And I vividly remember for a couple of weeks, I would always call up and request that particular song. So then I was like, you know what, I want to find the radio station and I want to see what it looks like. And I want to DJ on the radio like the college kids do. So I kind of made my way, I figured out where it was, it was in like this student center basically you know where mm -hmm. they have like the the college newspapers made and the college tv station and like the arcade is there and you know the different like student facilities and stuff and i slowly but surely kept going back and then i got a i managed to get myself a show on the am dial and i'm literally yep. like 14 years old i love it i can't believe they let you do that at 14 at the college radio station I look back and think about that a lot, too, because eventually, like, I got on FM and then I became, like, the hip-hop music director. And this is all when I was in high school. And I don't know if they just didn't care or they were so young. Like, they were 18, too, and <laughs> I course, was, like, yeah. 15. But I was so passionate about it. Eventually, over the course of, like, my high school years, I would go to the station after school and start calling record labels up. I figured out how to get promo 
you know, 12 inches and get promotional material like sent to the station to play that stuff before things came out. And then through that, I started writing for the college newspaper. It was called the Collegiate Times. And the more I learned how to do it, the more obsessed I became with DJing on the radio and, and learning how the record industry worked. So for many years, every Friday, Saturday, I would just spin on the radio. And a lot of my friends in high school, they would have big house parties and they would put my show on. Oh, that's great. So Yeah, and it was a crash course on how to maybe find some job in the industry. And after I graduated high school, I stayed around for a year and then I moved to New York City. I was able to get myself a job at a record store in New York City in 1998. And that's when I moved to Manhattan. And and it was all kind of off the strength of the stuff that happened in Blacksburg when I was just like, a bored teenager in a small town. Which uh, record store in New York? It's actually was the probably what's considered maybe the very first online record store. It's called Sandbox. Sandbox Automatic eventually it became known as, and it still exists to this day. So it started by this guy named Edward Wong, who was a student at NYU, and he would go around to New York City record stores and buy used hip hop records and then resell them online. I mean, this is like in 1995, 96. And I became a big supporter of his store, and we would communicate through these, even before message boards existed. I was on the internet at a very, very so this very is high early school on. for you, yeah. Right? When I was in high school, yeah. yep. When I got on on like these news groups, you know, before message boards, there was sure well, news groups. I remember NewsServe or NetServe or NewsServe or something like Usenet. that. Usenet, Usenet, Usenet. So there was a hip hop one called Rec.Music.HipHop. And uh, I became very active on that, you know, in 95, 96. What was your screen name? Well, here's the funny thing, too, is when I first started getting online, I had to use my mother's email address. So uh, because I didn't, even have an, I didn't even have an email address. So I had to use my mom's email address. So I think for a while, Jess thought I was, they would call her Katie. Her name's Kati, but uh, it's K-T-I. So, uh, and it was like a Virginia Tech email address, but... I didn't have a username. I would actually literally use my mother's email address. It wasn't until I left that I got my first Hotmail account uh, in New York. So anyway, so that was kind of like the launching pad for so many things. The Nickelodeon and weird shit uh, thing made me want to ask you guys, do you remember Turkey TV? Did you watch Turkey TV on Nickelodeon? No, I don't. No, I I don't think so. You guys are a couple years younger than I am, I think, right? And I'm 25. So, yeah, right, of, co- much, of course, of course. But in the, I, I don't know exactly when this would have been, probably late 80s on Nickelodeon, they had this show called Turkey Television. And it was a half hour, odds and ends. And they would show like the comedy music videos. This is the first place I ever heard Fish Heads by Barnes and Barnes, like a classic, you know, weird 80s mm-hmm. comedy music thing. Do you know Commander Cody? Mm, that sounds super familiar. To call it a single would probably be giving it a massive upgrade, but he had this song called Two Triple Cheese Side Order of Fries that used to play on Turkey TV all the time. It was like little animated shorts. You played that for me once. I did. Absolutely, yeah. I did. Probably because we were talking about this. And yeah, so much of like the, whoa, what the fuck is that stuff I had as a, you know, probably 12, 13-year-old came through Turkey TV. I remember for years trying to find the Dr. Demento show on some local radio station, and I could never mm-hmm. do it. I was just going to ask you if you 
listen to Dr. Demento. I listened to the compilations that Dr. Demento put um, out. He had these like the best novelty songs of the 40s and went through the 80s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s. And then there was a Christmas one too. So I would listen to those and then anything I could get my hands on that I learned about through that. Mm-hmm. But I could never find a nearby radio station. And of course, as you guys know, it was harder to find stuff back then. And none of my friends were into this stuff either. So I didn't even know who to ask. So there might've been a radio station nearby that was playing Dr. Demento, but I could never find one in North Jersey. I forget how I found out about it. It was probably through Weird Al or something like that. That was my probably first exposure to comedy music. And then if you dig a little bit into Al, you get to Dr. Demento. And then I think it was through that. And of course, the comedy section at record stores where they would stock stuff that you could check out. And much of it was, you know, like stand-up albums and stuff that I could not understand as a 10-year-old. But some of it was like accessible. I was obsessed with stand-up, especially stand-up on TV. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There were so many great stand-ups. Yes. And there was such great coverage of it Yeah. at that time. For there not being a dedicated comedy network or whatever. Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah, MTV and VH1. Yep. HBO had the Young Comedians specials every year, right? Evening at the Improv, I was obsessed with. In a way, by the way, that I am not at all with stand-up comedy now. I really don't consume much stand-up these days. Same. But, yeah, when I was a kid, all the time, I just wanted to see. I remember being obsessed with early Seinfeld when he was a stand-up. Watching it with my parents, I think it was the funniest fucking thing you've ever seen. Mm-hmm. Him, Emo Phillips was a big one mm. for me. Oh, loved Emo, yeah. Yeah, Judy Tenuta, the weird ones. I even liked Paula Poundstone. <laughs> She's I mean, great. Like, <laughs> yeah. She was good at what she did. And what the hell did I know, you know? Totally. So made me laugh. But I also loved Paul Mooney. Oh, yeah. Amazing. Oh, yeah absolutely brilliant and always have had a soft spot for when a black comedian impersonates a white person. Uh-huh. <laughs> it just, it gets my funny bone. I feel like the, the best example of that is the Eddie Murphy white like me sketch oh, on God. SNL. Yes. So for people that don't know, this, this is like classic Eddie era SNL where he, he puts on, white makeup and pretends to be a white person to show everybody how easy white people have it. They're like handing him free money at the bank and you know, <laughs> the bus turns into a part. It's great. So that we probably have talked about this at some point. That was written by Andy Breckman, who is one of my all-time comedy like oh, yeah. heroes. This guy on WFMU who's been DJing there since the early 90s in the show Seven wow. Second Delay that I love. And he's gone on to write a million other things. But as a DJ or as he really is a radio host, less a DJ. I thought this guy was the funniest dude in the world when I was in high school. And then it turns out he had written on SNL in the eighties and, you know, and gone on to do all sorts of other great stuff. SNL itself was so formative too. That's what you did on Saturday night. You had a friend staying over or whatever. Yeah. And those were good SNL. I mean, in the early nineties, that's the Hartman, David Spade, Mike Myers, Dan Harvey. Yep. Dana Carvey, like, I was obsessed with Dana Carvey. I thought he was the funniest person in the entire world when I was that age. I did, too. I think all teenage kids thought that, you know? I went to see Opportunity Knox 
one of his starring, you know, features, one of his few in the theaters, because I was such a big Dana Carvey fan. Mm -hmm. Oh, I love all those casts. Yeah, all of them. And I remember being at the age, too, when it was like special to stay up that late. I remember the night before going to summer camp, staying up late just to see Penn and Teller on Letterman, because I was so into Penn and Teller. It was probably 10 or something at the time. They hadn't become big names yet. But we went to see them off-Broadway in New York a few times. And this was before they had really, like, broken through. And they were kind of this underground, like, you know, magic comedy act. I remember it being a very special thing to stay up to watch them on, on late night. Letterman, too, was just, like, such a huge inclusion. That's, like, the every weeknight to stay up late and catch Letterman. And I remember Chris Elliott on David Letterman, oh, too. that Chris Elliott stuff is the best. Yeah, really influential for sure i was a johnny carson guy were you oh yeah if i had to pick you would have had to pick between the two right of course yeah we were a carson household i would have pegged you as more of a letterman guy that's interesting was it a west coast thing you think it was what my parents were watching wasn't up to me you know (laughs) that's true my parents never watched letterman it was always carson and then i guess they would just turn the tv off in time for letterman or whatever when he was still on late night so that was late night yeah i for sure had to be going to bed before letterman right yeah the chris elliott stuff i mean when get a life came on oh my god i was like who made this show just for me (laughs) how could this exist because it's on a major network for years Mm -hmm. and was so button pushy and aggressively funny unfunny that I just thought it was the greatest thing I'd ever seen. Have you revisited it? Episodes here and there, but no, I haven't like watched the whole thing. Does it stand the test of time? The Chris Elliott Letterman stuff definitely does. It's still fucking funny. Because he was like the intern. Like he was like the intern on the show, basically, right? Like that yeah, was his, like, like the guy, guy under the bleachers or the uh, guy under the audience, I think was him. And for my money, the best ones are the the Marlon Brando appearances when he would come out as Marlon Brando. Have you seen his banana dance? <laughs> I love the Chris Elliott, Marlon Brando banana dance. But I was going to ask Peter, I want to get back to the hip hop stuff. So what was the stuff you were really into when you were DJing as a teenager? Well, I mean, again, because I had an older brother and my brother Attila is eight years older than me. So by like 87, 88, 89, when I was like, you know, still in elementary school, it was, you know, public enemy for sure. I mean, he even had a Grandmaster Flash tape. So it was like super old school. Run DMC, public enemy. Yeah. And then I think when I really first got into like UMTV raps and like music videos, then it was NWA, you know, Boogie Down Productions, Eric B and Rakim, LL Cool J, of course, you know, the most seminal stuff from the late 80s. And then by the time I was on the radio, it was like the mid 90s was starting. So it was like another kind of generation the next generation of hip-hop stuff that was coming so it was de la soul tribe called quest you know more stuff from the west coast too yeah like the jazzier stuff kind of yeah gangstar guru pete rock and seal smooth nice and smooth so yeah stuff that was just incorporating more and more samples too because i was just like so enthralled by the production as well as the lyrics and stuff just the whole thing i was just like very much like taken by it you know and i think a lot of it is because i grew up in a house where my parents listened to like a lot of jazz classical 
and like kind of 70s you know pop and folk and stuff so all that stuff has lots of really great melodies and rhythms that were very easy to sample and then you know by like 96 97 that was like really like a big first wave of like what would be considered like independent or underground hip-hop and stuff where smaller groups are putting out right basically 12-inch singles on their own little record labels. And that became a whole process of learning about that, finding them, and then playing them on the radio in a small market where there wasn't really that many record stores. There's one in town. Mm -hmm. And I assume there weren't like hip-hop clubs. Nah. Unfortunately, in Blacksburg, Virginia has always had kind of a lack of really good music venues for some strange reason because it's routing wise people drive right past it all the time i mean people don't really play a lot of shows in virginia to begin with too when you're touring you kind of go from dc to north carolina or dc to nashville or you pass right over if you're going to play anywhere most likely it's going to be in richmond virginia and so any concerts that came to town would be at the university and thankfully they you know were open to the public too so my first hip-hop shows were all on the campus of virginia tech even like in i think 93 94 the roots came and played when they were still, you know. Oh, wow. So that's how they're just starting. Oh, right? uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, there was like 50 people there. With the full band and everything? Yeah, full band. Yeah, it was right when they're wow. basically what was considered their first album, but it's really their second album, Do You Want More? When that came out, they played like right after it was released. So they must have been on some college tour. So yeah. there wasn't a scene. There wasn't even really hip-hop fans. There's a couple of my friends that I would make mixtapes for and stuff in high school. And so then I became set on leaving and moving to New York City. Like at a, by the time I was 16, 17, I'm like, as soon as I graduate high school, I'm out of here. I want to go to New York. I want to work at a record store. I want to do the whole like, you know, thing. And that's what I eventually did that. Yeah. But the thing is, I just was back for the holidays a couple of weeks ago and I went back to the station, which is WUVT 90.7. And I DJed there nice. a couple of weeks ago, five hours set. Oh, over the holidays. That's great. Oh, yeah. Every time I, I go it. back, I still That's go so back great. to the station. You know, it's been almost 30 years, you know, going back. That's amazing. Yeah, it has not changed at all. It still is exactly the same, the station, too. Is there anything better than being like at a college show with an act you love and then they blow up like a year later? Or it's some really famous person, some amazing person who like maybe people just don't know. and. Yeah. I remember, and I know I've told you about this, JP. I remember at Williams, in some dining hall, they got Bernie Worrell and Buckethead to come. And there were like 20 people at this show. Fucking Bernie Worrell. Like, and Buckethead. Those guys didn't care because those college gigs, they, I mean, they probably got like five grand or something. For right. sure. They got paid great. They got paid great. It doesn't matter who shows up. Was it like a lunchtime thing? <laughs> no, it was It was a night thing. Oh. I don't know. I never saw any other show in this dining hall. I don't know why they set that room up for that. But they put up a little stage. I don't remember who the other people in the band were. I think it was Praxis at that point, but I mm-hmm. don't quite remember. But there were a couple other guys in the band. And it's just, you know, these total monsters And they put on an incredible show. Like the level playing was super high. And it was one of those things where you're turning around. You're like, are you guys seeing this? Yeah. People are just like, oh, yes. Okay, whatever. Most people are just there (laughs) because they lived in the dorm where that dining hall was. So stuff like that, I 
Oh, well, and by that point, of I think Buckethead was just coming up because this would have been 95-ish. Yeah. Uh, oh, wow. Early Buckethead. Early Buckethead. But Bernie Morel, you know, at that point is you know, even past his prime. Like yeah. an architect of yeah. funk. Yeah. And, you know, is playing to 20 people in northwestern Massachusetts. That's amazing. Yeah. Do you guys have any shows like that that stand out for you? Like tiny little shows you saw with incredible artists? Yeah. I mean, for me, it was back in Humboldt. It would have been Wesley Willis for sure. Oh, nice. He's more of a kind of a forgotten cult kind of like artist in a way. But he was so unusual and so charismatic. And it was back at the Vista in Eureka, California, in the Humboldt Bay, the same stage that JP had graced so many times. And at the time, there was no one really, I mean, there still is no one like Wesley Willis, the late, great Wesley Willis from Chicago, who was kind of like a sort of a punk, funk folk singer, you know? And uh, I was looking around being like, wow. And opening up was Grand Buffet, another like crazy group. I saw that same tour. Because I oh, saw nice. Grand Buffet open for Wesley Willis in San Diego. It must have been 2001, probably somewhere around there, maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, okay, about the same tour. And I'd known Wesley Willis already from college, from like the mid-90s. But Grand Buffet, I saw them there for the first time. And I was like, well, that was one of those things. Where I was like, this is fucking awesome. And they did candy bars and, <laughs> you know, right. I forget whatever else. But I immediately bought an album and was like, this is exactly the kind of shit I'm into. Yeah. Stuff like that, it just exists like in that moment in time and you might never see that artist again. And and especially back then too, when like so many really amazing artists were just kind of living show to show and you bought something at the merch table and you may or may not ever you know, get a chance to see them again. That's right. I remember some other act that opened for Wesley Willis. Couldn't tell you what the name was, but they were like a, whether they were actually this or not, they were like a German new wave band and they were wearing, uh, you know, it was like the black turtlenecks. I remember. It's not a Gilman Terrace party dream, is it? It was not, but I know that no, well. I think they were called Cats and Jammers. That sounds right. Wow. Because I opened for those shows in the Northwest. This is great. And I did like the Seattle, Portland, Vancouver, whatever. Uh-huh. As the like local support. Were they German? I don't think so. I wouldn't have guessed so either. It sounded like a bit. Because the thing I remember them saying, it was very obviously comedic. So I remember the guy gets on stage and the drummer's doing some, you know, drum, you know, very new wavy beat. And the guy goes, Santiago, are you ready to rock? Well, we aren't. <laughs> yeah, that kind of stuff. They're from Evanston, Illinois, to be honest. Cats and Jammer. Okay, great. I love this. Did you just look it up? No, I didn't know. That's a wild See, guess, but I think I might be right. <laughs> Cats and Jammers. That's great. Yeah. I've been trying to figure out the name of this band for 20 years. I could be wrong, but that's what I have a memory of. Awesome. But I did see Gilmentera's Party Dreams several times in San Diego. Yeah, they were another one that just was like of that era, toured relentlessly, probably booked by the Cork Agency, you know, and, and just, you know, what the passage of time, I don't I don't think they exist as a group anymore. But they were wild. Those were some wild dudes. So, Peter, what was your journey from the kind of music industry stuff you're talking about, DJing, to booking? This is primarily how we know each other as in your booking agent 
capacity? Yeah, well, it was a pretty long kind of road for sure. So I kind of dabbled in a bunch of different things before I got into booking. So, you know, I moved to New York to work at this record store. And at the time, I was also like freelancing, doing music journalism for various music magazines at the time, mostly writing about hip hop stuff. That was all kind of like through the mid 90s into the late 90s. I moved to Portland, Oregon in like in 98 to go to film school. And then I was like dead set on becoming like a documentary filmmaker. And Mm -hmm. I was going to make this like big documentary about underground hip hop. I had shot like probably 100 hours of footage as well, of like all the artists of that time. That's awesome. And yeah, yeah. All on high eight videotapes to digitize them all as well. I got really close with some of the promoters in Portland at the time. So then I was spending a lot of time in clubs and venues but mostly on stage, just filming people, interviewing them backstage or the following day. And when it was time for me to leave Portland and I wanted to finish my schooling at Humboldt State, I got there and I met all these, this like scene of like small DIY bands, punk bands, house shows, stuff that I just wasn't exposed to growing up in Virginia, just did not exist in where I grew up, you know? Yeah. But it's such a commonplace thing on the West Coast and those little towns in Humboldt County in Northern California, there's just not a lot to do. So people would just have like house parties and shows and play in vets halls and dive bars and on the floor of some restaurant. And so I met Michelle Cable of Panache, and I saw people like JP, Plesiosaur, and, and Wesley Willis, and Grand Buffet, and, and all these weird local bands, like just shitty hardcore bands, and mm-hmm. people that are ripping off the Pixies, and Modest Mouse, but also like weirdo, like Captured by Robots, and like Will Oldham, and like Neil Hamburger, mm-hmm. and people that would come and play this little tiny town, you know, just because it's just another night on the road. So I just started to understand shows. And then then slowly but surely, I started to book my own shows. And I would notice that, and this is like when I'm in college in my early 20s, that people would go from the San Francisco Bay Area to Portland, Oregon, or maybe Eugene, but they would always have a day off in between. So I started to like really just um, pay attention to people's routings and when they would announce tours and just be online. And I started to reach out to artists. And then I would eventually figure out that they had what's called a booking agent. And Mm -hmm. then be like, well, I see you have an off day between San Francisco and Portland or Portland and San Francisco. If you'd like to come and play in Humboldt, I would love to book your show. And, you know, lost a couple of dollars here and there, not knowing how to negotiate a deal or whatever. But I just started booking hella shows in, in Arcata and Eureka, sometimes with Michelle and Panache magazine at the time, and sometimes on my own or with other people and stuff. And I just became just obsessed with it and doing it all the time and I was DJing a lot back then as well. And that's how, of course, what JP said earlier, that's how we kind of met that way. All under Thanksgiving Brown, as that was your DJ name you would use all the time. Yeah, by the time I was there. Yeah, I had a couple names before that, but those are now sealed, permanently sealed in the files forever. Uh (laughs) But yeah, I mean, Thanksgiving Brown is, is all but possibly potentially retired permanently as well. But nevertheless, like, you know, it was like a crash course on booking shows. And, you know, a lot of the shows we did back then were like fundraisers or benefits to like one pay for Panache magazine to come out or to pay for someone's rent at their house, you know, in the living room, you know, and 
I just really fell into that. I found a community there that I didn't think ever existed. And eventually I moved back to New York City in 2005. From Humboldt, I moved to New York, to Brooklyn. And I had lived there for 15 years after that. But from that point on, I then spent most of my time working as either a promoter or a booking agent. And here I am, still doing it. And you were JP's agent for mm-hmm. a while, right? Yeah, long time. I still technically am his agent. In fact, I might possibly have something for you. Because I, I know so <laughs> the residents are on tour and they don't have any support. So off the record, we later we can talk about that. But I know you're not really performing anymore, JP, but perhaps I can compel you somehow later. Uh, nevertheless, yeah, JP and I, I gladly took on the project of being his agent much, much, much later when I was at Panache as an agent, eventually came on after working at the Knitting Factory on Leonard Street in Lower Manhattan. I was the talent buyer there for the last oh, three wow. years of the being open. Well, I didn't know that. Oh, oh yeah, awesome. I booked all the shows from basically the end of 2006 to the beginning of 2009. Is that when it closed? Yeah, when it closed. I booked alongside Chantel Hilton, who, JP, you might oh, remember yeah. her, possibly. She was a senior talent buyer. She was? She was, if you can believe that, although I ran circles around her. I mean, that's my homegirl. I love Chantel. Oh, she was always so nice to me. She was always so generous. And- yeah. Oh, she was a great teacher to me. You know, I spent so much time doing like DIY deals and like flat guarantees or just like basic punk rock door deals like yeah man i'll give you like whatever a couple bucks a ticket or something like that and she's who taught me what a versus deal was or a plus deal or how to you know put in expenses in a sheet and stuff like that and i I had no idea so i was coming from booking like way different style shows so that's one of my mentors too in fact I mean, I don't think you ever played the Nitty Factory during my time there, but I mean, I know that she had booked you. No, not while you were there. Yeah. You must have had tons of people come through there, right? I mean, that's oh, like a yeah. classic yeah, venue. Yeah, because yeah, it's three floors, and they right. wanted it booked every night of the week. You know, there's the old office, the tap bar, and the main room. The old office is 100 capacity. The tap bar was like 250, and the main space was basically 500 cap, 400 cap. So it would be this crazy range of stuff every night. I mean, I did a tons of hip-hop shows there, big hip-hop shows. But I also did, like, the first time ever a reunion of Teenage Jesus and the Jerks with, like, Lydia Lunch and Thurston Moore played in it. Really? Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. That's cool. Yeah, definitely did. Um, I had Kanye West perform there twice on shows that I booked. I had Missy Elliott, Buster Rhymes, Q-Tip. But, I mean, I also had, like, all these, like, weird, like, experimental shows and lots of comedy shows i used to do all variety shack which was like chelsea peretti oh, sure. and, and all that yeah wait we nsp did a variety shack once did you <laughs> we did chelsea was not there when we were doing it i think she had already moved on and this would have been like the first year of ninja sex party because they were at ucb occasionally and i'm trying to remember who they, they were it was four women right yeah, Heather Lawless, Andrea Rosen, and Shanali Bo, Bo, An- Bowick. Andrea Rosen. That's who I was trying to think of. She was oh, our, yeah, my think, our contact. So, yeah, lots of shows at the Nanny Factory. And then when the Nanny Factory closed, I moved over to Panache. I said, Michelle, hey, I would like to become a booking agent now. And she was like, yeah, just come work. You can work for a commission. And then I just started doing that. And eventually she was like, hey, do you want to book JP? And I was like, JP Incorporated. And I said, absolutely. I would love to. It would be my honor. 
And uh, we went on to do lots of shows. I mean, we did small shows and big shows. We did a whole tour with Devo, if you can believe that, um, which was absolutely incredible. There's some really great photos that Brooklyn Vegan had posted of JP opening up for Devo at Irving Plaza, which, you know, Brian, you just played at with NSP. Yep. And that was post-Plesiosaur. Oh, yeah. That was JP Inc. era? That was within the first year of it becoming JP Incorporated, yeah. Yeah, when JP was on Comedy Central Records, when his Comedy Central Records album came out. Yeah. Right. So a lot of that was in support of that. Didn't you move to that other agency? Yes, Inland Empire Touring. Yeah, with Robin Taylor, another veteran agent who came from Seattle, was like part of the Sub Pop family. She was Modest Mouse's agent for many, many, many years, along with Tim and Eric's original agent. She did the Yeah, Yeah, Yeah's in her pool. So after Panache, I was hired by Inland Empire, and, and I brought some select artists with me along the way, and JP just happened to be one of them. And so uh-huh. that's when we did Devo was when I was at Inland Empire. Yeah. Well, one of the things that's so interesting to me about this industry and many others, I've heard both of you talk individually about these mentors you had. JP, you had your tour manager mentors. And uh-huh. I can't remember the name. One guy I met, I think in Philly when we were there. Yeah. Dan Matt. Dan. Yeah. This industry is so fucking weird and it's essentially impossible to figure out unless you have someone who knows what's going on, like at your side, walking you through it. I love these mentor relationships that we all have and, you know, just have to keep developing throughout our lives. Yeah, because they, yeah. they, they kind of come and go, and then we just, you know, eventually just stay in touch with them. But, like, yeah, these moments you find yourself, like, when all the responsibility is on your shoulders and someone's like, this is actually how you do it. You got to try it this way. That's right. Many of them are so of a time and place, too, right? Like, the industry is not the same now as it was even five years ago. It's always changing, and you always need someone you can call and be like, what, what is going on, and how do I mm-hmm. deal with this problem? Because it's there's always some new bullshit to deal with. There are a couple of younger tour managers who would call me every once in a while for my opinion about something or advice on something. But the way I was kind of trained to do things probably isn't how a lot of people do things anymore. Right. So the way my friend Dan used to do things and still does things, I mean, shit, he's 60 now and still going strong. But the world doesn't work the same way. Yeah. We were just through a friend of Jarek's. We were talking with Kevin Lyman from the Warp Tour Mm -hmm. on this podcast a few months back. And he was like, yeah, touring festivals are dead forever. Sorry. (laughs) And I don't know if that's true. That was was, you know clearly his opinion. But he's like, yeah, the finances now post-COVID are just completely different than they were pre. And... I can't imagine doing another touring festival. Touring festival, yeah, I could see that. I think festivals, you know. Festivals, sure. A static festival, a Coachella or whatever, you know, those aren't going anywhere. But it had never occurred to me until he said that. I was like, oh, yeah, I can't think of any touring festivals I've heard of recently that are going around. Yeah, same. When we were all growing up, you know, teenagers, college, et cetera, they were huge, you know, Lollapalooza, That was like the cool thing. Warp Tour, mm-hmm. for sure. Mm-hmm. Lilith Fair. Of course, Lilith Fair. Yep. Yeah, and I can't think of any right now. Did you guys go to Lollapalooza? You must have got to Lollapaloozas. I've never been. Only pitched. Yeah. <laughs> I went to one in 1995 at the 
Sony Blockbuster Entertainment Center in Camden, New Jersey. Oh, wow. That might have been the same one I was at. Oh, yeah. I went to see them in New Jersey with my friend Dan. And I saw Super Chunk and The Boredoms. Mm-hmm. And I can't remember who else played. Was that a Beastie Boys year? Or? Well, I saw the whole year. And I thought that was 95. It was like Jesus Lizard, I think. Yeah. Mighty Mighty Boston's maybe. Oh, wow. I remember Moby was on the second stage when he was doing his hardcore thing. Uh-huh. And yeah, and Sonic Youth. Yeah, Sonic Youth. And I remember seeing, I mean, I think the second stage or maybe it was a third stage was like a flatbed truck off to <laughs> oh, the yeah. side. Uh-huh. I feel like this was even a few years after like the really cool years of Lollapalooza. Definitely. Yeah. I think it was like 92 or something like that. Yeah, in 90, maybe 93, there was a radio station festival on my side of the Puget Sound at the Kitsap County Fairgrounds. And there were Beastie Boys and Sonic Youth. and Oh, that's fun. That was incredible. I've n- I never saw Beastie Boys live. I always wanted to. I unfortunately uh, didn't stay. Oh, really? oh, no, really? Yeah, we were there to see Sonic Youth. And then you bailed? I think so. Or we went and smoked cigarettes in the you know, parking lot or something. <laughs> Which probably the Beastie Boys would have approved of. I mean, we were Beastie Boys fans, too. I just, I don't remember seeing them, so I never saw them either. Yeah. Brian, did you know that JP used to work at Def Jam? Was it Def Jam? He worked at a major label, record label. I worked for Mercury Records, which was part of right. Mercury Def Jam. Oh, no, I don't think I knew this. What did you do? I was at first in the radio promotion department. So I worked for the like a nine state region. And I was in the Seattle office with myself and two other people. And my boss was like the main guy to like promote albums to radio stations. But then anytime an artist came through town, I or my friend Rosemary would have to basically be the like label rep. I remember her. I I met her. Yeah, she's amazing. Yeah, she was awesome. Yeah. We'd have to be the label reps at the show. And I was 19. Mm -hmm. And so all of a sudden, I'm like working with Kiss at like the key arena in Seattle as Uh the Mercury Records rep, you know? (laughs) Oh, it's nuts. And I I had to take John Tesh around Seattle all day. (laughs) He was great. I had to take him to like a morning TV show and we were like doing stuff around town and then had to drop him off. And he was like, well, what are you doing the rest of the day? And I was like, I don't know. I'm just going home. Uh, You know, I'm going to take the bus home. He's like, oh man, we were in a limousine. He's like, oh no, man, take the limo. And (laughs) That's awesome. It was amazing. He was really nice. Carney Wilson hung out with her for a couple of days. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. She was really neat. But as my kind of bonus for working that KISS, part of the KISS tour, they gave me two front row tickets to the show. And uh-huh. I wasn't a KISS fan, so like I didn't really care. But my friend Ben and I went. And, you know, we're in the front row. I mean, dead front row. And... <laughs> Playing this like massive, you know, 15, 20,000 seat arena. Sure. And 
um, you know, they had a big camera on a big boom that was like, you know, passing the crowd. Mm -hmm. And he and I, at moments in our life, share a brain, you know? Mm -hmm. And we're sitting there and, you know, they're playing one of their dumb songs. And um, we see the camera starting to swing toward us. And we both like look at each other and nod. And next thing you know, we are on the Jumbotron going like making like, like buck teeth, <laughs> you know, making faces. And uh-huh. we were very, very excited. People noticed you and were excited about it or? I don't know because we were too distracted by the process <laughs> doing it ourselves. But I can imagine that just about everyone there saw it. Is Kiss good? I don't know anything about Kiss. I always wanted to like Kiss because I thought that they looked scary and interesting. Terrified me when I was like eight. Oh, I was Absolutely. very scary. But yeah. then once I was old enough to, you know, make my own decisions on what scared me, I heard their music and I was like, but this doesn't match up. No, it's it's weird, right? Their makeup. Yeah, they're demons. Yeah. And it doesn't match with the like the butt rock. It's not even butt rock. It's like roadhouse party music <laughs> yes trust me i like rock as much as the next guy but their look and their sound weren't in sync for me i agree with that the look is what scared me every time i've heard a kiss song i feel like i've never been like awesome that's great i love that song you know clearly they're doing something right because they are mm-hmm. very popular but they got a lot of fans so they do have a lot of fans and they were brilliant in a way And I learned this while I was sort of loosely working around them and around people who really worked with them. But they were brilliant because they would go to secondary markets because they knew that if you did, people had nothing else to do Mm -hmm. and guaranteed to be front page news. And whether people were obsessed with you or not, they were going to go to your show. Yeah. Yeah. That's smart. Very smart. Yeah. I think we see that with uh, some of our clients now, too. Like, you know, you have to service those smaller cities, secondary markets, tertiary markets, you know? Yeah. And, yeah. And any thought of going out and doing any shows for me, that sounds way funner. I'd rather play to 30 people in a tiny town that are psyched to be there than... Yeah. 500 people who are completely indifferent to your existence. Yeah, That's one of the interesting things, and this is one, one of the things I wanted to ask you, Peter, about YouTube fans in particular, the kind of people like NSP and imagine most real good touring acts play to, you generally don't get the indifferent, you know, hey, I'm just going to see a show type person. You're getting the person who is a fan of that thing and is there to see the thing. Yeah. And is very excited to see the thing. Yes. And so I imagine they were just going out to do whatever thing happens a lot less for the type of artists you're booking these days. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's the psychology of the fan for any kind of digital content creator is it's pretty remarkable. I mean, there's a great amount of intention because the likelihood that they might be able to meet that person, especially because we do VIP, early entry, Q&As and stuff like that. So you can engage whether or not it's um you know a real connection or not like 
the chance to kind of interface with the artist is pretty high. So when you go right. out, walk around by the merch table or what people are taking their seats, like there's a definitely a certain level of intensity and a certain level of just, you know, respect that's coming from the audience towards the the artists on stage. I've seen it with yeah, NSP, with Game Grumps, with these long running institutions too and it's totally fascinating because it's not really the same exactly for music there's something right much more profound at play you know yeah it's weird i mean in, in my performing career because of the weird arc of it i have almost never had to go win over a crowd maybe early days of ninja sex party um but post I don't know, the first couple of years, we took a few years off from performing. And then when we came back, it was like a much bigger deal. But in the modern era, since I moved to LA, pretty much anywhere I go is a group of people that are are there to see us and are very excited about it. And I imagine that, JP, that is not the situation with Plesiosaur. You've played to plenty of crowds as JP Anchor, Plesiosaur, whatever, where, you know, you have to get oh. them on your side pretty fast. Oh, probably 80% of the people I've played in front of, I had to attempt to win over. Right. <laughs> Which is why what you do is so great. It's precisely the thing that people might not like, which is the stuff I like. I understand that is what you like about it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think anyone sets out to be... I mean, maybe except for like Neil Hamburger or something, but I didn't set out to do something that people didn't like. And I don't think you have anything that is in your face alienating, for sure. No, I just the fact that doing something that isn't a, the standard formatting. Right. You know, and in the context, I mean, I've played in like one comedy club my whole life. So it was always in like a rock and roll setting doing this crazy performance art project, you know? Yeah. Doing music in comedy clubs sucks because oh, yeah. they're never set up to handle it. Yeah, and exactly what you're talking about, I've thought about in your case a lot because I think you have much more freedom to just go up there and do whatever your game plan is. For sure. And it's envious. I'm envious of it. Yeah, I realize how lucky we are with that. Yeah. Like, Not many people get to do that. No. Sure. Yeah, yeah. It's it's kind of an anomaly because Brian, you come out of the same era that JP does where like if you were kind of an outsider alternative musical comedy act that was playing in DIY venues like in places that were unusual and the audiences oftentimes don't know who you are and you're more of a curiosity than anything, like you're carrying the torch creatively of that to a certain extent where it's like there was a whole era of artists that would have to either win over an audience or if they didn't, then they would just have to antagonize the shit out of them until the <laughs> right. show was over. Like Grand Buffet would do. If, if people were being indifferent to them, they would just antagonize them and start turning on the audience and making fun of them. Sure. In the same way that that's why we love Neil Hamburger so much, or that's why we love, say, someone like Todd Barry, the comedian who does crowd work right. and will pick someone out of the crowd and make fun of them. And we love that. We want to be made fun of. But whereas, like, I think you guys came from that world and then your audience, though, the chemistry is so different. But the sardonic humor is exactly the same. Well, it, 
I, I wonder about that sometimes. I, I think elements are there, but one thing I do notice and that I think about with the like Ninja Sex Party fans in that audience is a lot of times that darker stuff, the stuff I really like, does not play as well with this crowd. And I don't know if that's generational. I don't know if it's just mm. what that audience is. But my tendency is always to go kind of dark and sarcastic. And what I have found is that that doesn't work as well with our audience as it does with some other audiences. And we will often pull things back if we're writing a song, we'll pull things back because we're like, we think it's funny, but it's like, no one's going to like this. You know, <laughs> edgy is the wrong word, but it feels too too dark or negative, I guess is the word I'm looking for. feels like mm. it's taking too negative a thing. We never really make fun of things. You know, we're not poking fun at Target. It, it's ourselves that we make fun of. But I mean, the, the example for me that I always come back to with this is we had a song we were very excited about called It's Never Too Late to Give Up on Your Dreams. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I thought it was really funny. And then we went down a road of writing a song and we were like, it's just depressing. Like, it's funny, but it's just too depressing. People aren't going to like that. And, we, and I, you know, if we really like it, we'll keep at it. But it was just like, well, we didn't love it. And we could sense how much people would hate it. So we just stopped it. You guys are so dialed with how well you know. <laughs> right. We try to be, yeah. And that's something that you care about. Absolutely. You're curating a thing for yourselves, but also for them. And I think you guys have really done a masterful job at doing it. Oh, yes, thanks. Absolutely. Yeah. It still feels like it's working. So, you know, oh, that's, yeah. <laughs> that's a good thing. But I, it will never feel to me like I didn't jump the line. You know what I'm saying? Because of the way YouTube worked, works and worked for us. We started out a few years of doing playing to nobody and then paused and then we started it again. It was big enough to be these big theater shows or club shows. We never did the 100, 200 cap rooms steadily. We went from 50, if we were lucky, to over 1,000. Even though I know it's not, it will always feel like cheating. Well, Brian, what's your experience when you do your all-star shows or back in the day when you did the luau's? I mean, that's going back into the small club circuit. Like, how does that feel for you? I love it. What I like about those shows, the variety shows, which JP has performed on a ton of over the years, is that people don't know what they're going to get. And there, there is more of the like, what is this? We don't really know what we're about to see. And there is more of an element of having to win people over. And it's fun. And those shows, I feel like I can be more antagonistic. Never in a, exactly a mean way, but at least, you know, I'm force feeding people mayo and stuff. Like, <laughs> Yeah, but people are already coming because they trust you, your curation. That's right. They trust you as a person. And they know it's going to be a safe environment. Yes. It's going to be fun and lighthearted. And it's not going to be a depressing night. And That's right. You know. <laughs> well, I told both of you about the napalm death overlap in San Antonio. <laughs> no, I didn't hear about that. No. Oh, when we played Paper Tiger in San Antonio, that venue has like big courtyard and two like garage door venues that open up to it. It was us in one room concurrent with napalm death in <laughs> the other so there's a big marquee at front that said Ninja Brian, $18, Napalm Death, $25. <laughs> uh, which love was that. great. 
And there was a little overlap between the crowd. Like I walked outside and a couple metal guys were like, oh, shit. (laughs) Really? Yeah. I mean, you know, just like one or two, but that was great. And your experience in Arcata, how was it? Oh, yeah. I, I, so this is the thing I wanted to talk about, Arcata. So we, we did the variety shows in, in Arcata at Miniplex there. So we had a full day, you know, there to like hang out. We didn't have to load until like four o'clock. So I got to wander around. So what I, here's what I did in Arcata. I wandered around like the main town square. The plaza. The plaza. And then I went to the Natural History Museum, oh. which is a one-room museum. Have you ever been there? Never. I didn't even know that existed there. So if you're on the plaza and you're facing north and you walk along the rightmost side, you just go north up the hill towards the university. On the side, I just passed this and I walked in. There's like a one-room natural history museum, which has like almost nothing, but it's great. It's like a tiny little museum with a bunch of rocks and like different geological eras, you know, a little like dioramas and stuff. Very cool. And then I walked to the university because I like to check out universities. And I sat in the library and answered emails for an hour. Nice. I love that library. It was great. And then I walked back. Oh, and I went to a a really good sandwich shop, which was a few blocks away from Miniplex. It was like an an old gas station or something. Hmm. Do you remember what it was called? I could figure it out. You know, it's been a long time since I lived there. But I mean, there's some good food in that town. I mean, it's a great place. I got to say, I get teased a little bit in the office for my insistence of continuously trying to book all of our clients (laughs) in Arcata. And I've had great success with it. But I have to tell you, Brian, I mean, I do think that the show that we did was probably, as far as my tenure at Real Good Touring, it might have been the best-selling show I think I've ever booked in Arcata. Oh, really? Oh, wow. That's awesome. It might rival with Twerp. I'm trying to remember how Twerp did, but Twerp was at a different venue. As far as Miniplex go, I've never sold a show out there, and I've done at least a dozen. And yours was the one and only sold-out show oh, I've awesome. done at the Miniplex. So, I love yeah. it. A lot of people came kind of day of for that, too. As I recall, it was like, you know, about half a couple of days before, and then we got a big bump. And it was a great, you know, it's, it's kind of a black box, but yeah. it was great. I had a really fun time there. Hole in the Wall, Great Sandwiches is the name of the place. Oh, I'm talking Hole in the Wall. Just, yeah. Yeah. Oh, cool. But yeah, God, what was the name, the, the guy who, who runs Miniplex? Merrick. There it is, Merrick. He was awesome. And yeah, clearly, I guess, you know, knew each other. And he was very supportive and a lot of fun. Yeah, he was there when I lived there, you know. JP, he was like a kid at the Placebo, and now he's like the main promoter in town. Oh, wow. So, yeah, Merrick is a great guy. That's where all of our shows go. Even when we did Super Guitar Bros before your show, like it was through Merrick, among so many other acts, too. You know, I love it. I'm so glad you guys were generous enough to allow me to do it. Oh, dude, I'd always wanted to go. I'd never been up there before. You know, I love weird, small Northern California towns. The weather had cooperated. Like it wasn't raining or anything. It was it was nice. relatively cool. Yeah, it was great. With that show, I do remember there was some very, very drunk lady who was there afterwards who kept trying to like corral us into pictures. So we all kind of escaped as fast as we could and hit on the bus <laughs> because, you know, that, that venue has like a, a restaurant or a bar or something attached to it. And she was like getting in everybody's face. So we had to bolt. <laughs> that that makes a lot of sense. You know, when Torp played there, someone threw up on their suitcase at the merch table. So. Did they really? 
Oh, oh yeah, my god! Yeah. So if you avoided that, just the drunk person trying to take a picture is yeah, you could have gotten thrown up on. We did take a picture with what the goat, the sheep, something like that. They have oh, at Richard's goat. Yeah. Yes, Richard's goat. That's what it was. I think we should move on to the segment portion okay. of this show now. So I think you know, Layden's not here this week, so we're just going to do one segment. Okay. We're going to do the pop culture recommendation segment. We're going to skip peaches and lemons for this week for two reasons. One is I'm leaving on a trip tomorrow and I want to get inside to spend time with my daughter, but mostly it's to spite Layden because she's not here and I can't do anything <laughs> about it. And these small little power grabs are all I have left. Well, next time I see Layden, I'm going to tell her my peaches Don't, and lemons. If you say a fucking word. Peter. <laughs> so we're going to do what's popping. This is the pop culture recommendation segment of the show. You get to talk about book, movie, video game, whatever it is you've been enjoying recently. We do have a theme song. We add it in post. So it's going to go here. What's popping? What's popping? And now I ask you, Peter, you can go first. What's popping? You know, as you know, like I have a lot, I got a lot of records and physical media here at the house and stuff. So what I've been listening to most recently is more something from quite some time ago. In fact, it came out in 1988. So, okay. Might not be that long for us, but for some people, they're long, <laughs> have not been born. But this CD right here, Steve Halperin, Crystal Sweet. I don't know if you guys have heard this or not, though. No. I think. Both of you will like it. I think JP, in particular you, you may enjoy this because it's not that different from the album that you recently released, your Massage album that you did. Uh So this is a a great classic New Age record from a record label based in Oakland, California, released in 1988. Again, Stephen Halpern, Crystal Sweet. This is stuff that like, when I get home from work, I put this on. And I'll tell you this, after my many years of living in New York City, I grew up on the East Coast, even all my years living in Humboldt, in Portland, Oregon. It wasn't until I got to LA that I really started digging my heels into the most obnoxious new age music that you could possibly find and sincerely Uh appreciating it. And actually it's very quite therapeutic for me. So this is an album, a go-to. I actually got a Jackknife Records here in Los Angeles in Atwater Village. Oh yeah, that's a great store, sure. Oh yeah, and their CD selection is quite good. So this is my current thing that I'm listening to the most, which is at least like maybe once a day and very soothing, very relaxing, deep tonal, synth new age music i love it i highly recommend it great i'm gonna get into that one i recommend any of you guys out there that like anything synthy earthen with there's a big giant crystal on the cover i see that you're gonna love it it's perfect that's great as we all have talked about although individually not together i have done the same like visiting of things with smooth jazz over the last few years and a lot of the stuff I fucking hated is now my absolute favorite. And yeah. is that because I'm just a different person or because I gave it a chance or because I now like bad things? I don't know. It's you've gotten lamer. Yeah, probably. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, JP, do you want to pop off here? I'm going to do a kind of a split screen because when I typically consume media of any sort i'm usually doing it in concert with another form Mm -hmm. 
So like, hmm. I usually watch two things at once. Like if I'm watching a game, I'm watching like a TV show on my iPad as well. Uh-huh. And I just like it. So I just got a PS5 last week. Oh, how? I'm still trying to get one. It was a gift from Twerp. The fact mm. that, okay. I need okay, to talk now, to them. Yeah, I need work. to talk to them as well. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, I guess they got two more uh, PS5s they're going to have to uh, find. That's exactly now, right. There's a, long, there's a long story as to why a gift was potentially deserved. Oh. But um, very generous of them. So they got me this PS5. And I'm not much of a gamer outside of, you know, playing Mario Party and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So... I've been playing, and I was so excited to play Star Wars Battlefront. Oh. <laughs> I love Star Wars. A game which is now six years old or something. Totally. And I bought yeah. it for four ninety nine. I couldn't have happy as a clam. And so I've been playing Star Wars Battlefront 2 while listening to Brian Eno. Oh, and nice. I've been listening to a lot of Brian Eno lately. So I would say check out Battlefront 2, everybody, by <laughs> by EA, the Electronic Arts Corporation. Uh, it's $4.99 on the PlayStation Store. And mm-hmm. then I think you can't really go wrong with Brian Eno. I mean, just pick anything. I mean, it's a, such a wide swath of styles and formats that have graced his catalog. But if you want to put something on repeat that will, again, sort of relax you and get you into the uh, zen for Battlezone, mm-hmm. An Arc of Doves by Brian Eno okay. <laughs> is an absolute masterpiece. Is that 70s, 80s? I don't know what era that is. Well, uh, so what's popping for me, I actually recommended something by this artist last week because I've been really into him. Is uh, Do you guys know Don Ellis? Uh, oh, yeah trumpeter like amazing jazz trumpeter and composer arranger had an absolutely killer big band in the 60s and 70s and pretty much everything he wrote was in odd meters five and seven typically and i've been just listening to him nonstop for the last couple of weeks and i recommended an album last week on the show i want to recommend a different one this week it's his last album live at montreux 1977 so don't look to listen to the album. Go to YouTube because they have the video of the band performing and they have a bunch of tracks that aren't on the album. What year was it? 77. The Montreux Jazz Festival, 1977. He's got a string section. He's got an incredible percussion section. Like a lot of the stuff he did, he was amplifying and distorting things. But, you know, in the context of a big band, he'd throw his trumpet through various filters and stuff. It's so great. Not a miss in the entire discography, but in particular, this live album from the Montreux Festival in 77, watch it on YouTube because it's great playing. And it's, it's, you know, it's a period piece. Everyone looks like they're from 1977 because they are. His final album, too. His final album. So he, he had a tragic story. He had, he had heart problems. He is this guy who wrote almost exclusively in odd meters, and it turns out his heartbeat was broken. He had some mm-hmm. kind of fatal arrhythmia. And yeah, and died very young, I think in his mid to late 40s, something like that. Mm. Way, way too soon. And 
essentially was told to stop, you know, stop playing because your heart can't take you blowing into this trumpet. It's too wow. stressful. So yeah, died very, very young of heart problems. But the music is great. I guess he saw a little bit of a resurgence in recent-ish years because the title track from the Whiplash movie is a Don Ellis composition. Oh, really? Although I, not his arrangement. They rearranged it for that big band. But yeah, that piece in seven. That's Whiplash by Don Ellis. So yeah. Definitely check that album out. Cool. It's great. Great. All right, guys, thank you. Thank you for being here, JP. Thank you for jumping in at the last minute to co-host. And Peter, thank you for agreeing to this many days ago. <laughs> it was so much fun. Yeah, what an honor. Yeah, thank you. We'll start with you, Peter. If people want to find you, where can they find you or anything you do online? Oh, I so don't want to be found. But okay. um, but but uh, but if you mu- <laughs> if you absolutely must, then the only social media I'm on is my Instagram, which is at Culturama, C-U-L-T-U-R-A-M-A. So that's where I'm at. Great. JP, where can people find you? I don't really want to be found either, but if you need to, it's at JP Incorporated. Great. On Twitter or Instagram. And we can still listen to your music right online, JP, correct? Like um, Some of it. Have you been wiping the internet? Um, a little bit. I've been re- re-curating my, you know. Oh, really? Yeah, I think those things have a shelf life. Yeah, so you've been on purpose taking some stuff down. Yeah. Oh, interesting. So. Cool. I love it all from both of you. Well, Great. Thank you, Peter. <laughs> I do want to be found, but I'm not going to tell people where to find me. So that way we complete the little triangle here. If they're listening to this by now, they should definitely know how to find you. Yes. If they're listening to this, they can find me here. Yes. And that should be good enough. All right, guys. Thanks again. And everybody. Uh, now, usually actually Layton ends the show. And what she likes to do is randomly throw to a guest to end the show because she doesn't like to end it. So because I uh, completely biffed her segment out of spite, uh, I'm going to indulge in this tradition and throw to you, Peter, any parting words that you'd like to end this show on? Advice, a saying, haiku? I'll end on a saying. It's, it's do-do-do-do-do. <laughs> From Nardwar? Yeah. Yeah, great. Do-do. There you go. All right. (laughs) Thank you, guys. Bye. Leighton Night is produced by Brian Wecht, Leighton Gray, and Jarek Centeno. Follow us on Twitter at Leighton Night, on Instagram at Leighton underscore Night, or email us at LeightonNight at gmail.com. 